Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Ukraine has reclaimed thousands of square miles of territory from Russian forces that fled in disarray as Xi Jinping made clear to Vladimir Putin and Samarkand that their limited partnership has clear limits. As we tape this, Reuters is reporting that 400 bodies have been found in a mass grave in Izium that was recently uh, retaken by Ukrainian forces uh, accusing Russia of committing atrocities there, as in Busha and elsewhere in occupied Russian territories, charges Moscow denies. In a powerful address, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, wearing Ukraine's yellow and blue, said that despite the extraordinary speed and power of the EU's response to Moscow's aggression, harder times lay ahead and more must be done to ensure Ukraine succeeds and Russia fails. After a string of wins for President Biden, especially with his base, U.S. inflation figures rose, but news was buried by South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham's proposed national abortion ban, reversing the GOP's longstanding case that reproductive laws should be made by the states. In primaries, pro-Trump and election-denying candidates prevailed, including retired United States Army Brigadier uh, General Don Bullduck, who's running for one of New Hampshire's uh, Senate seats, uh, immediately changing his tune, however, after winning his race, saying that Joe Biden was elected president of the United States, raising a trust question, certainly for Maggie Hassan's team, who will be running against the Republican uh, to retain her seat. Just as consensus was growing that Donald Trump might go to jail for stealing some of the nation's most secret uh, and sensitive documents that in turn may have made it into foreign hands, a judge appointed by the former president has shielded him and may actually have set the conditions for the case to be dismissed entirely. The Senate is back in session as lawmakers work uh, on the NDAA appropriations and a continuing resolution and covering higher inflation costs for defense contractors that are struggling with higher material component and people cost. And the Iran talks uh, continue as Tehran continues to provoke uh, forcing many to wonder why on earth we are still uh, in talks. Uh, a new scandal rocking Morocco and Israel and a new flare up between Azerbaijan and Armenia that has left dozens dead. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security and co-host the Brussels Sprouts podcast uh, that I commend our audience to listen to uh, if you are interested in uh, all things uh, NATO and transatlantic, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who uh, counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading air show was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And a shout out for our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters uh, each week. And the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look uh, at all things space. 
Uh, everybody, thanks very much again for joining us. We are inverting the order today because unfortunately, Jim Townsend is on a very short leash uh, with us this morning. Uh, Jim, uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Um, Ukrainian gains on the battlefield have been simply stunning. You know, we've been saying on the show, we expect the stalemate and things to move uh, slowly. They moved with extraordinary speed. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen's address was a very powerful one and worth remembering uh, the enormity of what the United States, NATO, and the EU have accomplished, but also setting clear the tasks that lie ahead, especially as some people, whether it's Emmanuel Macron or others, even in a NATO context, are making the case, hey, look, we're going to have to talk to the Russians. Uh, you know, we don't want to back them into a corner. Um, it's a two-part question for you. You know, the first is what Russia does next. And the second thing is what Washington and Brussels have to do next. Start us off on the Russian front. This is a very, very bad look. We uh, and Patrick is going to talk to us a little bit about what happened in Samarkand as well. But you're welcome to comment on that as well. Putin not getting the help that he expected from uh, the Chinese. Um, you know, and it was funny that as Ukraine was gaining territory, uh, I think the economist pointed out, you know, Putin visited a Ferris wheel that broke down. What do the Russians do next? Because it's still a giant country. It still has a lot of manpower and it still has a lot of military capability. Even, it's been, even if it's been misusing it in Ukraine? Well, I tell you, uh, given what is being uncovered uh, in terms of Russian uh, crimes, uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, no matter what you call it, finding bodies with a noose around their necks, hands tied. Uh, I think, Vago, you had mentioned this is like a Caton Forest uh, massacre scenario where- I, Yeah, uh, and during... I should point out, right, this is an Izium uh, where Reuters reported today that 440 bodies um, had been uncovered, right? And a debate about whether or not these are atrocities or just, you know, mass graves. But yeah, yes, we take your point. Well, I would say a, a noose around the neck makes it an, an atrocity. <laughs> but uh, given that, right. uh, China, uh, and again, uh, people know uh, Asia better than I do, but uh, I can't imagine the Chinese wanting to even uh, make closer their relationship with Russia based on what they're finding and the fact that uh, for China, um, you know, that type of relationship with Putin is bad for business, it's bad for their uh, economic relations with uh, the United States and others, uh, possibility of sanctions. Uh, so this is something that um, is not good for Putin at all. And uh, we're seeing more and more and more of this. So what does Moscow have to do now? Well, the first thing they've got to do is to uh, stop this route. And it is a route and it's continuing. Uh, in terms of Russian, uh, the Russian front and Russian forces melting into the hinterland, some dressed in civilian clothes, riding on bikes to get the hell out of there. So uh, for, for, for Russia, uh, there's, they're going to have to rethink their whole uh, strategy here. Uh, their their uh, north has just collapsed. Kherson is still going on. Uh, that's, that's moving more slowly, but it's strategic. And uh, Ukraine is, knows how to fight in that area. Unfortunately, the Russians are dug in which will make the fight harder. Uh, but right now the morale is sky high in the Ukraine forces as they continue to have success up in the North. And I think in the South, uh, they, won't, they likely won't have that kind of success, a, break, a breakout the way the Ukraine forces did, but uh, they are continuing to fight down there. And that draws forces continuing to flow South out of the North, which makes the, uh, the route to even move quicker uh, as forces begin to be sent to reinforce uh, the Kherson area. So uh, Russia's got a big, uh, big problem on its hands, but Ukraine has got to think this through as well. We know that um, you can get ahead of your skis uh, in a situation like this where 
um, the, uh, the, the Ukraine forces can outstrip their logistic supports. Uh, they can be too thin on the ground and make them vulnerable to uh, localized uh, counterattacks by Russian forces. Uh, this is a very vulnerable time for Ukraine, too. They're having great successes, but where do they stop and let the logistics catch up? Uh, what, is their, what is their strategy now in terms of where, what they want to try to gain from this? Uh, this is something that uh, they, they're going to be figuring out uh, to make sure that they can, they can hold what they've captured uh, and that they've got the forces and the logistics to keep moving if the opportunity presents itself. And, and what is it that uh, Washington and Brussels uh, have to do next, right? I mean, because there are these themes, don't back them into a corner. We have to negotiate with them. On the other hand, I think von der Leyen deserves a lot of credit. Uh, and indeed, I think the EU deserves a lot of credit for the way that it's come, come together, not just to deal with the domestic crises facing um, Europeans, but also in terms of being tough uh, with the Russians, e even with Orban's uh, in this mix. I mean, what, what has to happen next from your perspective? Well, what's got to happen next uh, is the, uh, in terms of the European Union, and including the United States, we've got to redouble our efforts to keep Ukraine supplied. I mean, the logistics that I just spoke about a lot of that depends on flow from the United States and from Europe in terms of ammunition and that type of thing. Training of forces as well. That's becoming even uh, more important because they, they've got to have the personnel to hold what they have captured, as, as I just said. So, so number one, they've got to keep, keep up and not start to feel that uh, the, torn, the, the uh, corner has been turned, that a great success lies ahead. I hope so. But uh, to make that happen, we've got to keep up the support for Ukraine during this very you know, important but vulnerable time in terms of their offensive. The second thing is winter is, is just uh, weeks away and a lot of up in the north particularly. And so the EU is continuing to work on that. Um, there seems to be some confidence that they're going to be able to handle the energy requirements uh, that, uh, that will come down in the winter. Uh, the economy is still taking a battering. So for the EU, they have got to focus on making sure that there are not cracks in the European unity um, uh, that uh, that we've been worrying about. And Vago, you mentioned that uh, you know the some heads of state have gone to Zelensky in the past and have wanted him to make a deal. Having seen uh, the 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 horrible consequences of Russian occupation of of various uh, Ukraine cities, there is no way uh, to go talk to a barbarian like Putin. Um, so uh, so a, whether it's Macron or any other European leader who thinks they're going to go and talk to uh, talk sense into Putin or even be uh, seen as someone who is trying to find peace and should be supported after these findings, that's just not going to happen. And Macron and others who think that they can go to Moscow with the, as a peacekeeper, they've got another thing coming in terms of what that's going to do to how others will look on uh, Macron. So so they need to stay home and they need to. Uh, to focus on getting the uh, European nations through the winter and continuing to supply Ukraine. Uh, I think these atrocities that have been found are gonna really pull Europe uh, and the US together. Uh, they're, we're gonna it'll make us even tighter. And hopefully it's gonna really motivate Germany and other places to empty out those arsenals of leopard tanks or whatever it might be and get them to the Ukrainians to use. Um, and let me uh, just ask you one last thing, because I know you got to go uh, in a minute. Um, are you, you know, when you talk to EU officials and NATO officials, they feel like they've been doing a very, very good case about making this clear that energy prices and food prices are high, not because of sanctions, which is the Russian messaging, 
but is because of Russia's war. And yet you still hear Europeans sort of echo this. You've had demonstrations, which we've uh, discussed. You've had changes in government. Um, uh, I think we saw a change in government in Bulgaria. We have social Democrats now uh, who have won uh, or become kingmakers in Sweden. We have a far-right candidate um, you know, who commemorates Mussolini as a great Italian leader um, who is going to become the next uh, prime minister, succeed the likes of Mario Draghi, uh, one of the true greats on the international scene, um, you know, what's, you know, and, and, and some reports that, you know, both the EU and NATO are maybe not as popular as some would like to believe. I mean, where, where are we going and what more from a leadership perspective do folks in Europe as well as folks in the United States need to do to make sure that we keep these nations together ultimately, because, you know, Putin's other aim is not just taking Ukraine and, you know, sort of rebuilding the Russian empire, but is also to fracture the West uh, and, and damage it. Well, I think there's definitely, you mentioned the elections in Sweden and the, uh, and the Sweden Democrats, which is their far right party that's now the number two party in Sweden. Uh, these elections have uh, definitely been a, a bit historic when it comes to Swedish politics, but you mentioned also Italy. Uh, and uh, and other places, you know, Le Pen and, and France and other places where there seems to be yet again another rising tide of, of right or far right uh, parties. I don't see this as leading to fracturing uh, the unity of, of Europe. I, you, we, we've seen um, uh, conservative right wing parties in Italy before. Uh, Sweden has, has not necessarily seen this, but um, but I think we're I think the EU is going to be able to manage this. I really don't see. Uh, the unity of the transatlantic nations uh, weakening because of these elections uh, that have happened. Uh, and I think, and I, as I mentioned earlier, I think that the atrocities that we're seeing uh, in Russia are enough to uh, not only um, you know, scare in, in a lot of ways some of the nations that feel they might be next, uh, but also to so outrage um, both left and right, uh, that we're going to see uh, unity even closer. So I'm not so concerned about that. But I, I do salute your point that that we are seeing changes in terms of the political profile in some of these countries. But I really don't, Liz Trust, you could even say that. But I really don't see this rise as something that's going to lead to, uh, uh, you know, a fascist wave or a, a fracturing type of situation in Europe. I think uh, it's going to be some right-wing politics. We've seen it before. We'll survive it. But even more important, I don't see the change in politics bringing about a change in how these nations uh, oppose the Russians. Jim, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Break your leg on your event today. Thank you very much. See you all soon. And uh, every and what's the event? Tell everybody uh, what they have to be checking out. Well, in um, just a few minutes, we're going to roll out the CNAS report on Russia in the Arctic and uh, what we might see in the future as Russia depends more and more on the Arctic, both in terms of resources, but also in terms of their uh, military because of the importance of the Northern Fleet area. Uh, and with Sweden and Finland joining NATO, there's going to be a lot of NATO on the border of Russia. And we know how paranoid they are about that. Uh, and so this is going to make us a response coming from Russia that will be felt in the Arctic. And we're talking about what that might look like and what do we do in response? Uh, uh, long, 
uh, long overdue for people to be paying more attention to that region, but I'm glad that the focus uh, is there and you guys always do uh, terrific work uh, and look forward to a full uh, full readout uh, next week after you've officially launched it. Thanks very much, Jim. Indeed. Thank you, Vago. Cheers. Um, Patrick, I want to go to you uh, next. You've been one of the people who's been consistently um, saying that uh, the limitless uh, partnership between uh, Xi uh, and uh, Putin uh, is likely to be somewhat more limited. Uh, what did we see in Samarkand? What were the interesting themes that you picked up? Because um, if I was Vladimir Putin, it was a pretty humiliating outing. Yes, Vago, it was a humiliating outing for Putin. Um, this was uh, quite a step down from a man who uh, seven months ago was uh, able to to win this no limits relationship, <clears throat> which was based always on um, different dreams from these major powers, a marriage of convenience that was moving into a more assertive phase, but still very fragile, as we've now found out seven months later, once Putin has um underperformed on the battlefield uh, in the face of Ukrainian opposition, suddenly he's more of a liability than an asset uh, for Xi Jinping, Um, because Xi Jinping has bigger dreams, frankly, than uh, his relationship with Russia. He sees China's movement toward center stage of the world uh, in the coming years as the critical objective, the national rejuvenation uh, of of China is indeed what we're going to hear in spades next month at the 20th Party Congress. He's been rehearsing this. Xi Jinping has uh, in provincial speeches. This the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization meeting in part is the foreign relations element of his campaigning uh, of the propaganda of the party state of China. Uh, he did visit Kazakhstan first, uh, which is where he first rolled out the Belt and Road Initiative a decade ago. He's already pledged to go to Indonesia uh, in November for the 20th, um, for the G20 meeting. Uh, And that's also where he rolled out uh, a decade ago, the Maritime Belt and Road Initiative. So Xi Jinping is working on his own strategy and plan. Um, And so what we saw in Samarkand is uh, Xi Jinping saying, hey, we big powers, we revisionist big powers really, uh, want to protect our core interests, but we have limits and conditions. Um, and so don't expect us to be there militarily with you, Russia. We weren't doing much for you militarily anyhow, but we still want your energy. We still want your food. Um, we're still going to be using each other politically to uh, push back on the Western U.S.-led rules-based order. Um, and by the way, you know the downside of this was that India um, is continuing to play a big role in this um, you know, this phalanx of nations and, and was at the SEO talking about supply chain cooperation. It's obviously continued its close defense relations with Russia, which cannot be uh, untethered easily or quickly. Um, but this is a reminder that Delhi also has its own vision of the future that doesn't completely overlap with the United States. It does when it looks at China's encroachment in the Indian Ocean and in the Indo-Pacific region generally, but, you know, as Foreign Minister Jai Shankar has made clear, plurilateralism is India's uh, main objective as well in foreign policy. And that's sort of where Putin and uh, Modi and Xi agree that they do want these sort of different poles in the international system. That's different from the transatlantic view uh, in the view maybe in Japan and South Korea and Australia that a U.S.-led world order uh, is still the best uh, break on on conflict and the best uh, hope for prosperity and freedom. And I think you know that division, unfortunately, is leaving a lot of nations 
in this non-aligned camp to get a second wind. And India, China, and others want to be the leaders of that non-aligned movement. China's lost a lot of credibility in that in that those countries. So Indonesia and India see themselves as having potential leadership ability, not just cooperating with the United States on the one hand, keeping a relationship with China on the other, but then also helping to mobilize uh, countries in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and Africa, and Latin America uh, around uh, a less uh, sort of a, a more middle approach to, uh, to foreign policy. There was an event uh, last night, uh, was an EU event, and it was um, absolutely uh, terrific. It was the press event that the um, uh, EU delegation to the United States holds. And, and some of the conversations, you know, on the, on the sidelines uh, were, you know, the interests sort of China sees in this, right? That China had been building a relationship with the Ukrainians. Um, and that actually, Ukraine could actually, the China could actually profit from helping rebuild uh, Ukraine, right? Seeing sort of profit uh, here, um, you know, how much stock do you put in that? And how does the rebuilding here go? I mean, the places that we're seeing that were recaptured, the entire region is just a shattered war zone. I mean, much of the country is a shattered war zone. The estimates now are pushing well past, you know, 100 billion or 200 billion or 600 billion. There were some estimates that put this at, you know, sort of in, in the trillions or trillion beyond the trillion mark. Uh, to rebuild the the, the country, uh, and it ain't over yet. Um, does China see any advantage to this, and hopes that it gets a piece of that? Is that a factor you think that's playing into this uh, as well? Economic interests are important, obviously, to Beijing. I, I think the big point here is simply there's a there's a difference between the discourse coming out of Beijing, uh, including about this global security initiative, which is what how they dub this alternative world future and architecture. Uh, and how they broached that issue back in February with uh, with Putin, and their um, actions, and and their actions are going to be oriented toward their actual interests, which they read very clearly and carefully. Um, you could say the same thing over Taiwan policy, where now you have drones crossing the median line, and there's great rhetoric and harassment, but their interests are not to stir and instigate a conflict. Their interests in Ukraine are indeed to be ready for economic interests um, and to keep Russia as a pole in the international arena in a multipolar world, but not uh, but not to actually get involved in that war. Um, by the way, the North Koreans are doubling down on, on saying good things about Putin, and they are going to be filling that niche uh, in part that China will not be filling with some of their arms. And again, as I've suggested, probably some of the trainers. But China's very good at protecting their interests, especially a few weeks before the 20th Party Congress, which will run a week uh, in the middle of October. Um, and Xi Jinping there, if you go back to the 18th Party Congress 10 years ago, there was a transfer of power from Hu Jintao and a more consensual uh, sort of approach to the Chinese Communist Party leadership, a, a more assertive militaristic uh, Xi Jinping. I mean, the military became a core part in that 18th Party Congress 10 years ago of um, the standing of China in the future. Um, five years ago at the 19th Party Congress, Xi Jinping made it clear that he had primacy over the party. And at this 20th Party Congress, we may even see a, a shrinking of the standing committee, which is the top seven of the top 25 of the Politburo. Uh, and that may be shrunk down to five. And Xi Jinping has truly consolidated his power. The great rejuvenation of China, which Xi thought is at the key. He doesn't want Russia's bad timing to uh, complicate that. 
Um, but yes, he also wants all the economic benefits he can get because he has enormous economic headwinds in China right now. Uh, Dove, uh, you've been pa very patient. I want to pull you into all of these uh, strings, right? I mean, we have, uh, you know, we had atrocities in Bucha. Now it looks like we have them in uh, Izium uh, as well. And and this was just breaking as we were getting uh, underway. Um, and then how it is as the EU and the United States should be responding to what are next that we have to do. And it's, as you've said, right, the administration has a tendency of doing the right thing perhaps a little bit too slowly, although I have to say the administration has been moving faster uh, on some of these things. Hopefully they're, they're listening to you. Um, you know, what's, where, where are we and what is it next that we have to do? Um, you know, what is, what is the end game we should be moving toward at this point? Because I think we're all agreed, Ukraine has to win and liberate its territory and Russia has to lose, but then we have to think about what comes after that, right? I mean, administration considering this can be going on, but we could have maybe, you know, once once this settles down, can have nuclear talks uh, with uh, with the Russians, for example. I mean, we're, we're how do we need to think about where we are and where we're going? Because we might be getting there a lot faster than anybody thinks. Well, first of all, on the atrocities, I think every time a report like this comes out, it further strengthens the uh, Ukrainian sense of nationalism and identity. Uh, and puts the total lie to what Putin has said about Ukraine not really being a, a state of its own. And that leads me into China saying that Taiwan is not a state of its own. And here uh, I agree with Jim, who's a European expert, and Patrick, who's an Asia expert, but only up to a point. Because it, whatever they put out and whatever the reports are, to assume that China will never support Russia really is a heck of an assumption because it depends on what happens in the war. And, right. you know, if Russia is being humiliated, which it looks like it's on the way to being humiliated, that creates a major dilemma for, for Xi. You know, obviously, Patrick has given all the right reasons why she wouldn't want to get further involved. But on the other hand, a humiliating defeat complicates Xi's plans for Taiwan, I think, in a number of ways. And maybe I'm contrarian on this, but it seems to me it's going to make it harder for him to make the Taiwan case if Ukraine really wins big, which it could. Winning big means taking back all its territory, perhaps including Crimea. Second of all, there are already reports coming out of Ukraine that the Ukrainians are thinking maybe they ought to shift a little more over to Taiwan. Uh, Lithuania has already done that. It's not the only one. They've upgraded the state of uh, the uh, represent representative office there. China's very upset about that. Um, if Ukraine were to move in that direction, others might as well. And that makes it even more difficult for Xi. I'm not saying it's going to happen now, but I cannot anticipate that Putin will stay quiet if his forces are being pushed back, where else can he look? Yeah, North Korea can help some. He's going to have to go to China. And that creates a major dilemma, really, for Xi. And I think we ought to make it clear to him now, not wait until it happens, that he better not do that, that it's not in his interest. And that not only that, if he starts helping the Russians out, we're going to make sure the Ukrainians are going to win, win big and win quickly. And I think we ought to make sent that message across. Right now, he's clearly hesitating, as Patrick said. Um, good. 
let us underscore that hesitation. Uh, the way it looks right now, the Ukrainians could take even Crimea. The Russian morale is awful. People have been dropping their, their arms and running away. You know, that's what happened in some of the Arab-Israeli wars. That's why the Israelis were able to clean up as quickly as they did in some of their earlier wars. You've got a morale problem, and you're not going to have good command and control when you're bringing in North Koreans, criminals, Wagner groupies, new recruits who don't want to even be in the war. I mean, the Russians have a major problem here, and it's not even clear that if he called up a major mobilization, it would help him very much. So for for Putin, she is the only salvation. And we've got to make it clear to she that it ain't worth it. Um, I should uh, commend to the audience. Uh, she would be wise to ignore Putin's pleas uh, for more assistance, which is uh, ran uh, today uh, in the Hill and is a great piece. Uh, and I suggest folks, uh, as all your work is, Dove, uh, to uh, to read it. Um, Michael, um, look, I mean, right, I mean, the big mistake of launching a war like this, whether you're the United States or any other nation is it backfires on you and ultimately it makes you, it diminishes your status. It makes you look weaker. Um, and for Putin, this was a massive roll on the dice and it's been a fail on every single metric. Uh, and, and you're right, he, he could lose uh, Crimea. All the Ukrainians have to do is take out the bridges um, I mean, and the dynamic situation gets worse because the Europeans are now positioning themselves. You know, he cut the gas off and the Europeans are actually look like they'll be OK this winter. Uh, there are going to be challenges, but they may be OK. It's going to impose costs on everybody, uh, but it's not going to have the effect that the, the, the Russians uh, hoped. And I suspect that at some point we're going to be pressuring our Middle Eastern allies and partners Um to not be a safe haven for Russian money, right? I suspect that that's going to be the next piece of this equation uh, and, a, and a road uh, we're, we're going to have to cross uh, as well. Dove, I mean, do you think that that's a road we have to cross, right? I mean, because whether it's Saudi Arabia or the Emirates, uh, they have been giving haven to a lot of Russian money that's uh, you know, been escaping from other parts of the world. Is this, is this an area where the United States, once things, you know, and the Russians really start looking bad, the United States turns to these countries and says, hey, look, guys, we're going to have to, uh, you know, we've sort of turned a blind eye to this. Uh, we need your oil. Right. I mean, if, if they're not pumping more oil for us, you know, the United States doesn't have to be that nice of a guy anymore. Right. Yeah. Can start to put I, pressure it, on them. It, it's less a matter of the money. I mean, we've seen with the Panama Papers that there are all kinds of ways to hide your money and all kinds of lawyers and banks that will help you hide yeah. it. I think the real issue is the pumping of oil. And, uh, you know, the sad that all reports are that the Saudis and the Russians are still in cahoots on this and the Emirates to some extent as well. And again, it's a matter of, you know, the administration will probably get it right, but it better not take too long in doing it. I think it's time now to send a message to both uh, Mohammeds, Mohammed bin Zayed and Mohammed bin Salman, that this can't go on. That they have to, A, pump more oil and B, distance themselves from the Russians. And that if they don't, it's going to be very, very difficult for the administration to support them and for Congress. Congress is not going to take this one sitting down. So, uh, again, it's not a matter of when uh, of, of whether the administration should put the screws on these countries, uh, but when. And uh, frankly, if they want to consider themselves allies, and as I've said on, on this podcast before, 
they've got really nowhere to go when it comes to providing ultimate defense for them. It's the Russians clearly aren't going to do it and the Chinese won't do it. Uh, And so if they want us to defend them, then they've got to do something that we need as well. And right now we and the Europeans need them to start pumping more oil. Well, and I think the, the, the fallacy of this is that they feel that through their accords with Israel, that this gives them an out without that the United States is not necessary. Uh, and suffice it to say, you know, we've all had conversations with Israelis and others who make it abundantly clear that, you know, that that's an important thing for them to be coordinated, but that they would not be able to fight this war against Iran on their own without our help. Uh, well, that's and, absolutely and that's right. Underscoring. You know, the, the, there's this isn't really new. Uh, the, several of the Middle East countries have long expected Israel to essentially fight their wars for them. Uh, and the Israelis have made it clear not only that they can't, but that they wouldn't even if they could. Uh, right. And uh, there's another problem for, the, for these countries, which is if Netanyahu comes in as prime minister, we don't know how the administration is going to react because we don't know how Bibi will behave. He doesn't exactly get along with Democrats. Uh, and certainly if the Democrats uh, take this, remain in charge of the Senate and have a decent showing in the House, even if they don't control it, it's going to make it very hard for Israel to get its own act together with the United States, much less act on behalf of some of these other countries. So that would be a very, very poor bet for them to make uh, if they think that somehow they can hide behind Israeli skirts and and get away with what they're doing. Um, although I will have to say, I mean, one of the things that really did uh, spark the Obama administration and drive them to negotiate the nuclear deal was exactly the sentiment that I was getting both in uh, Abu Dhabi, but also from Israel, which is, well, we'll start it and you'll finish it. You know, you two, you're too weak to start it. We're brave enough to start it and you'll finish it. And the White House at the time would tell me, well, that's the problem. <laughs> These two could start something. And then we're the ones who end up now with the third or fourth uh, Mideast war uh, or, or, or war against the Muslim nation uh, on our hands. Right. I mean, we were in Afghanistan, we were in Iraq, Libya. And, and, and the last place you wanted to be is, is also fighting a Shia. And, uh, and that is and that is our nightmare all along, that somehow the tail will wag, wag the dog. The, the only thing is, of course, that. You're now talking not just that Israel will drag us in, but that the uh, Saudis or the Emiratis will drag the Israelis in who would drag us in. So that's a little more tenuous. And it seems to me uh, it's high risk for them. Uh, They need us. And uh, we ought to tell them, look, we need them to do this. And if they won't do this, they better not expect the degree of military aid they've been getting. And they may not expect the support that they've been getting more generally. Um, Look, we are still the superpower here uh, and certainly vis-a-vis them. And uh, we shouldn't be so shy every once in a while about uh, letting people know that we are. You know, and and as we move on, I just want to say that the United States really should look at the United Arab Emirates and Saudi uh, Saudi Arabia differently. There's a tendency of lumping the two countries together uh, in how Washington views them. And I believe that that should not be uh, the case, that there should be a differentiated uh, view uh, given the, the approach of the two countries is, is, is fundamentally different in many, many, many respects. Uh, okay, uh, Michael, you have been expe- exceptionally patient. Normally, uh, you're uh, the one who starts us off uh, on these uh, discussions, uh, and I'm cognizant that our time 
is 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 brief and and folks are going to have to punch out soon uh, as well. I'm not going to put you on the spot because I know you represent uh, nations in the Gulf, so I'm not putting you on the spot on that. Uh, start us off with uh, sort of let's start let's start backwards a little bit with war sentiment and what's going on uh, in Ukraine and how lawmakers. Uh, are uh, responding uh, to it because there are still strains up on the hill uh, when you go to either end of the party uh, that don't want to be doing this, whether they're on the Republican side of things or whether they're on the Democratic side of things. But what are the key lawmakers that you interact with on a weekly basis uh, telling you about what it is that should be next, what they see as the end game, and how much deeper American support is uh, for Ukraine and and what you do to replenish stocks. I mean, right. I mean, at the end of the day, it's great that the Ukrainians are having these gains. The Europeans are almost tapped out in terms of what it is they can provide from their arsenals. We are being very generous from ours in the process, demonstrating, hey, we've got a hell of a lot more capability that's really, really good, which uh, should be a great uh, signal uh, to uh, the Ukrainians, uh, excuse me, to the Chinese. I mean, that's one more question I have for Patrick in a min- minute that uh, I want to get. But give us your sense on what the congressional sentiment is before we have to go through a lightning round of covering a lot of legislation and getting to the primaries as well. Uh, so as you know, the administration uh, asked for some additional supplemental funding for Ukraine as part of a larger package, uh, which will probably be attached to the CR for COVID relief, monkeypox, uh, and uh, disaster relief. Uh, about 47 billion total, 13.7 of which is for Ukraine. Uh, and I would expect that the 13.7 billion in additional emergency funding for Ukraine will be attached to the CR and will, will get passed with bipartisan support. However, uh, as we've talked about before, uh, I think there are, I am starting to see some strains in Congress. I did speak to some Republicans this week, and I can see them you know, saying that these votes are getting tougher for them. Uh, they're concerned about um, accountability of weapon systems. What if, you know, what happens when a stinger gets in the wrong hands? You know, all this begins to unravel. Um, they, they'd still like to harp on the fact that there's a lot of corruption in the Ukrainian government. I mean, some of the, you know, <clears throat> Tucker Carlson, you know, Fox News talking points uh, are starting to resonate a little bit. And I think that these packages are going to continue to get um, tougher after this one passes. I would not be taking anything for granted. And I think that the administration needs to do a, a good job of informing, educating these members of Congress, especially about the atrocities and things that are happening over there. Um, you know, communication <clears throat> is going to be critically important uh, going forward, especially if the House uh, does flip in the November elections. Now walk us uh, really quickly. Uh, we've got the right Senate back in session. Uh, we have an NDAA. Uh, we've got an appropriations measure. You've said we're going to have a continuing resolution, likely is going to span us through December, right after the election, when people feel like they can take votes. Um, you know, we have debt ceiling. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's coming into play here uh, that we need to be paying attention to. Bring us up to speed on all of that. Sure. We're still in a holding pattern on, on NDAA. I mean, there was some progress yesterday. Uh, Chairman Jack Reed did uh, lay out uh, the mechanics for uh, offering amendments uh, to the bill, uh, but there still is no floor time scheduled for the legislation in, in September. Uh, you know, the Senate seems to be taking up time on confirmations. They will need time on the CR. They were blocking time on the marriage equality legislation. However, yesterday they decided to pull that and save that till after the November election. Uh, they needed 10 Republican votes. They have nine right now. Um, after the election, they do expect to get 15 and that legislation will pass. Uh, 24 Republican senators sent a letter to Schumer uh, pressing him to get NDAA uh, on the floor and considered. 
Um, however, I don't think that's really going to resonate with Schumer since there were no Democrats uh, on, on that letter. So we'll have to see. I, you know, and I, I do believe we will get an NDAA. I think the, the committees will start pre-conferencing now, uh, but I think floor time uh, may never happen. And we may have to go straight straight to conference. Um, there is some news, however, speaking of the authorizers, uh, Congressman Joe Morelli, who is on the Armed Services Committee from New York, uh, was tapped to fill the vacant seat on the Appropriations Committee. Uh, which was vacated by Charlie Crist, who resigned to devote his time to running for governor full time in Florida. And, you know, we talked about the special elections, the special election in New York that surprised the Republicans where Pat Ryan won in New York 19. Uh, he is a West Point grad, an Army veteran, and he was just assigned uh, to the House Armed Services Committee. Um, you know, appropriations still uh, is going nowhere. There are no discussions. There is not even a framework. Uh, to have discussions. Uh, but, you know, outside groups continue to put pressure on to support these higher numbers. Uh, the National Defense Industrial Association has been actively uh, informing members of Congress about how inflation has reduced the buying power of the DOD, and they're pressing for a $42 billion increase. As you know, the Senate Armed Services Committee added $45 billion, um, House added um, about $37 billion, and the Senate Appropriators have added $30 billion. I still think the, the number at the end of the day when there's a deal will be somewhere around 60 billion uh, for this year. Um, and then, you know, the CR right now looks like it's going to go through December 16th. Um, there's some disappointment there. I, I think a lot of people were hopeful that the CR would go through December 2nd or at the latest December 9th, because they never get the deal done by the time the CR expires. It's the deadline that creates the pressure. And uh, we will probably need another short-term CR, but that gives them just one week until Christmas uh, now that the CR goes through the 16th. And, there's still a lot of things to work out with the CR. I mean, Manchin it was promised uh, that his energy permitting reform bill will be put on this by Schumer. However, 72 Democrats in the House, led by uh, Hask Chairman Adam Smith, uh, signed a letter to Speaker Pelosi uh, asking him to diverge from Schumer's proposal. They don't want to see this in the CR. Um, the monkeypox uh, aid and the COVID relief also is problematic in the CR for Republicans. They think that uh, the administration should repurpose some of the money from the American Rescue Plan uh, for this. So. Uh, you know, it depends on who I talk to. I hear different things about the you know, Hoyer is telling his members to be ready to be in session the last weekend of September up until October 1st to get this done. Uh, some Republicans in leadership last night told me they plan to get the CR done by next week and give back that last week of September. Um, if I were a betting man, I'd say this comes down, uh, comes down to the wire. But uh, in the end, I do not believe there'll be a shutdown and that the, a CR will pass. Uh, and um, we had uh, primaries, uh, pro-Trump candidates uh, did well, election deniers did well uh, on the Republican uh, side of things. Uh, we had another complication. I understand where Lindsey Graham is coming from. Hey, listen, we shouldn't run away from it, which is what a lot of Republicans are doing about what their abortion positions are. He said we should own it and we should do what it is we've always wanted to do, which is enact a national uh, ban, right? Something which the GOP has always Anybody who knew what the GOP wanted to do knew it wanted a national ban, but it was always couching it as this is a state's rights issue. We want states to decide uh, and and not have a, a blanket uh, ban, which was, you know, just rhetorical parsley, um, you know, and we've got guys like uh, Don uh, Bulldog, uh, who won uh, competing against Hassan uh, for that seat. And no sooner did, did he, you know, win. Uh, he began to say, you know, Joe Biden was elected president of the United States. Right? I mean, he sort of couched a little bit, but that's what he said. Um, you know, what? Where? Where are we? Uh, and what are the prospects for uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, in the fall? Right? In an open mic moment, Chuck Schumer was heard. You know that he's pretty comfortable that they're going to keep the Senate, but that Nancy's going to get creamed. 
that's a statement you don't really want out there, uh, as awkward awkward as it is. Where, where do we where do we stand right now, and and what's the uh, what's what are sort of the tender dynamics of this that are going on? Uh, because Lindsey, you know, I mean, Lindsey Graham pulled the president off the hook on a bad inflation day. That story was completely lost because everybody is talking about a you know national abortion ban uh, instead. No, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, look, uh, the Republicans continue to choose uh, candidates in their primaries that have uh, <clears throat> less of a chance of winning. I think you know, the Senate became less in play after the New Hampshire primary you know, when Don Bulldog you know, won uh, the GOP primary. I mean, it doesn't matter. He's, he says now that with some caveats that Joe Biden was elected um, illegitimately, he's been an election denier all along and he can't run away from that. Uh, so he's a much weaker candidate against Maggie Hassan in the general, and that, that that seat will probably stay in Democratic hands where otherwise it could have been in play. Same thing with the candidates that won, uh, the Republican candidates that won the House primaries um, in New Hampshire are, are also uh, pretty right-wing uh, out of the mainstream folks. I mean, one, one of the candidates, uh, Bob Burns, who won the primary in New Hampshire, uh, not only opposes Kevin McCarthy for speaker, but said that he may run against Kevin McCarthy for speaker you know, when he gets here, So uh, if he gets here, which I don't think he will. Um, so, you know, I think that the... Um, you know, the, the, this, the Republicans, I think, will still capture the House. I think that it'll be less seats than they could have, not only because of the candidates that they're picking, but as you mentioned, this abortion issue is not helping them. I mean, I mentioned two weeks ago that Republicans are, have underperformed in every special election uh, since the Dobbs decision. And this is something that they should not be talking about, should not be on the headlines. And I think um, a lot of Republican senators, including Mitch McConnell, came out to try and tamp down uh, after Lindsey Graham you know, started to introduce his bill. And the House Republicans are doing the same thing. There's another abortion bill that was just introduced the other day uh, with 80 Republican uh, co-sponsors. This is not uh, the message that they want to be focusing on right now. Uh, they did the Democrats a big favor, right? The inflation was huge um, last month at 8.3%. Um, and the Democrats dodged another bullet on the, the rail strike. You know, If there was a rail strike, that would have been devastating to the economy. And that could have hurt uh, Democrats at the box office as well. And Another story that's not getting a lot of attention that I think hurts Democrats, too, is that the January 6th committee um, has said now that they do not plan to cooperate with the Department of Justice's criminal investigation in, into Trump's efforts to overturn the election, uh, which you know lends credence to the Republican argument that the, the January 6th committee is all about show and not about actually well, uh, addressing the problem. But, but that's uh, the next question, which I was going to ask Dove, uh, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there are very good technical reasons for that, that they're doing that, right? Uh, in part because of what Judge Cannon has done uh, in Florida, right, with uh, the, the president. I mean, it's, it's possible the way that she's structured this, that if a single document by the special master is tossed out that has already gone into prosecutorial questions, the whole case can be thrown out, which is, I think, what she's seeking to try to do, right? I mean, however much criticism you want to put on it, right? Or am I misunderstanding well, the, the so, technical uh, mechanics of this? Are you asking me or asking Mike? Well, no, no, no. I was, I was, I was just putting this to Michael, but I'm going to ask you in a minute uh, that that question. But I mean, is, is this is is this the committee trying to actually protect its own investigation from what it's doing to make sure you know what I mean? Is is well, there a little bit more to this than it meets I, the I, eye? There might be, but I still think so. I mean, the committee has no authority. Uh, to prosecute. Uh, so I would think that whatever information that they collect, uh, they'd want to share with DOJ. And then in the past, the House and Senate Ethics Committees have shared their information with the Department of Justice and other investigations. So if the goal is to punish the wrongdoers, uh, the, the Congress doesn't have that, that capability. And 
all of this doesn't lie, lie with Judge Cannon. She's a district court judge. Uh, right. If the DOJ doesn't like her rulings, they can appeal to the um, the circuit court and beyond that. Which, which was appointed Supreme by court. President right. Trump. And then it goes to a Supreme Court that was appointed by President yeah, Trump. Yeah, but I would not assume that every Trump appointee is going to be supportive of um, <coughs> Trump's efforts to uh, who steal classified information, overturn the election, and do everything else he's doing. There are plenty of people in the Trump administration, including his former Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, who has been very outspoken uh, in favor of what the DOJ is doing when in going after the president and the raid on Mar-a-Lago. So so far, he's dodged every bullet that's been fired at him. He's fired a lot of bullets. <laughs> people around him are falling, uh, and people around him have fallen and still stayed loyal to him. Right. So I mean, this is a little bit like getting a mafia boss. I didn't tell him to do that. I just merely said he is a really meddlesome person. Uh, it's not my fault that, you know, so-and-so shot him. Anyway, I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I just think he's going to get away with almost all of this. Uh, but, you know, whether on technical grounds or on fringes or on, right, I mean, in this case, we're talking about executive privilege and the justices of the Supreme Court and those vetted by the Federalist Society have a very imperial view of the American presidency, right? So- it, you know, they, they may side on um, presidential power in a way that redefines what presidential power is going forward, right? I mean, that's kind of my concern. But anyway, yeah. um, uh, Dove, uh, uh, let me bring you into this both on the, on the primary count of things, but also whether, um, you know, it's possible, depending on how things play out, that on this very sensitive series of documents, you know, I mean, you know, the... Uh, the the issue you know the the judge was focused on the leaks which is a republican and one of the president former president's talking points uh, even though anybody who knows the former president knows he's the leakiest man in washington most of the negative stories have a tendency of having come from him as a way to be able to then blame everybody else for leaking uh right i mean he's he's very clever at how he uses the press uh for for example your your sense on on the outcome of some of these races uh, and where we end up. And then we really do have to go into a lightning round to cover uh, a lot of questions. And I'm going to bring Patrick in on it as well. Go ahead. Well, very quickly, uh, I'm with Michael in terms of the analysis of what's going on in, in the elections. Uh, I can give you a, a personal sense of that. Uh, you know, I have a place up in uh, the mountains of New Hampshire, which uh, when you drive around there, you see a ton of Trump signs. The only problem is that there aren't all that many folks in the mountains of New Hampshire. Maybe that's why I'm up there. Uh, and if you go further south, where you have Concord and Manchester and Nashua, uh, those are the folks who tend to be voting Democrat and so, uh, or independents who are very independent uh, and are not going to like the kind, like Balduck, the kinds of people that seem to have won the Republican primaries. And so I think Michael's right. Uh, you know, the, these candidates are alienating independents. And remember as well, you've got a lot of Republicans who flipped over to independent. Uh, they don't want to be Democrats, but they don't want to be Republicans right now. And I haven't seen very much written about that, but the Republican Party is not exactly growing. And the more independents they are, the more likely they are to be turned off by Trump type uh, candidates, I think. And so we've been saying for the last few weeks that we're not talking about a Republican majority of 60 or more in the House, but rather 20 or less. And I think that still holds. And I think Schumer is right about the Senate, although he was indiscreet about the House. Uh, in terms of where the, the uh, 
lawsuits against uh, Trump and what the uh, uh, what uh, the district court judge did. Uh, look, that is going to go to the Supreme Court. I think everybody recognizes that it's at some point it's going to have to. And I'm with Michael. I'm not so sure the Supreme Court is going to rule in favor of Trump. Uh, people like Kavanaugh in particular, uh, and certainly Roberts, uh, they don't want to go down as, as having supported a Dred Scott type of decision, which is what this would be. Uh, and so if it goes to the Supremes, I think it could go six to three or even seven to two against Trump. But more important than that, far more important is what's going on in Atlanta and to a lesser extent in New York. The Supreme Court has no jurisdiction over these state uh, lawsuits. Uh, the Atlanta one is a criminal lawsuit. Uh, and if it's criminal, Trump can't avoid being put on the stand if the state wants to put him on the stand. And that's going to be disastrous for him because he's he's not the best client that lawyers want, which is why they don't want to work for him uh, in in the state lawsuit. They might actually nail him or nail his family. Uh, Letitia James is running for election again and uh She's turned down several offers from the Trump people to put this case away, uh, and she's going to try to put him on the stand. And whether he goes or doesn't go, it doesn't make him look good. And again, that'll alienate even more independence. So uh, he's not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, and he knows it. And that may well be why he's delayed announcing that he's running for president. The other side would say that the Supreme Court actually may have had three Dred Scott decisions in a row on guns, on religion, as well as uh, in the Dobbs case. But I, I will I will take your point and add that. Well, to- well, I'll come I'll come back at you and say, you know, guns and abortion uh, are not don't rise to the level of the uh, constitutionality of, of this case. I mean, this is a case right. that goes to the heart of what the nature of this country is about. And certainly which is accountability and whether or not the president can actually be held above the law, which is what the Nixonian argument was. Right. I because I'm president, I do it. It is legal because I did it. I, I, I can bug and I can do these. So, things. so it's so it's of a very different order from a debate over whether abortion is a constitutional right or not. That's my point. Right. Very uh, quickly on the international scene. Um, Patrick, uh, very quickly, um, you know, Dove's case. Uh, I think rightfully was that the United States can put pressure on Saudi Arabia. Do they turn to China? And is there a compact that gets closer with China? Because the Emirates were very unvarnished about uh, their intention to get closer to the Chinese and that the Chinese actually were the future, uh, whether anybody really liked it or not. And that message was driven home to me, whether it was by Emirati officials, whether it was by American officials or British officials and even French friends saying, these guys really are moving closer to China and, and, and want to deepen that relationship. Is this the out relationship, right? As, as the U.S. increases pressure on them, they're just going to move closer, closer to China, you know, even, even if there are military implications to our relationship. Otherwise, from a trade and economic perspective, do they move closer to China no matter what? Well, I don't know about no matter what, but they are moving closer to China because China's luring them. They want those strong ties with resource rich and wealthy countries. Um, so wherever China can um, strengthen the relations, especially at the U.S. expense, they will. Um, and especially when it helps to underwrite their economy, which is right now in trouble, but which they're hopeful that can be righted in the coming years uh, to sustain the vision that Xi Jinping is going to be selling 
to the Chinese people in the world next month, the 20th Party Congress. I wonder, can I, Vago, just say a few things about very quickly about the fact that U.S. allies in Asia, though, are all showing some muscular strength this week. I mean, it's very interesting to see all three of them flexing their muscles um, very quickly. I mean, we had the resumption of extended deterrence talks between South Korea and the United States in Washington, D.C., including with the not very subtle messaging of going out to Andrews Air Force Base and having Korean officials kicking the tires of B-52s. Uh, and announcing that the, the Ronald Reagan will be doing the first nuclear aircraft carrier joint exercise with the ROK Navy in five years. That's message number one from South Korea, as President Yoon heads to the United Nations next week to give a muscular talk at the UN General Assembly. And he'll be meeting with Prime Minister Kishida and President Biden on the margins of that, strengthening the trilateral cooperation that's important. Message number two is coming out of Japan. They've started to release details of their defense budget. And it's extremely uh, important that they're going to be spending uh, potentially a, a great deal more money on systems that, in their words, I'm reading from one of their documents that they sent me, um, to deal for Japan to help itself and respond even if deterrence has failed. So it's the standoff defense capabilities, the, the, you know, the missile and air defense capabilities, uh, cross-domain operations, command and control, uh, sustainment and resilience. But it's all oriented toward deterring China on Taiwan, I would argue, that kind of messaging coming in these budget documents, very important. Um, and thirdly, Australia, we've just celebrated, Mark, the first anniversary of the announcement of AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US defense partnership that is meant to be an accelerator of technology, not just on nuclear-powered subs, but on other high technology. Um, and a bevy of Australian parliamentarians were here in town. Very important. In fact, check out on the Hudson website, um, Andrew Hasty, who's the shadow defense minister. He was introduced by Congressman Mike Gallagher, who, by the way, gave a shout out to this particular podcast, the Washington Roundtable, to me privately, said that he loves to listen to this every week. Uh, whether that's true or not, it was great to hear. Uh, and um, and We, and we so, love to hear from Mike. Uh, and so and, thanks very much, uh, uh, Dr. Gallagher. And my point on the on the AUKUS was was one, they know that they've got a six month deadline to get serious about announcing what they're going to be delivering as a first step. That'll be just the next stage of debate. But nonetheless, they've got some specifics to deliver on. Some of it's on the submarine choices, other parts are on the technology. And by the way, the technology, it's not just export controls and old fashioned protection of supply chain. It's import controls. How do you stop the import of what the Chinese are doing? That'll intersect Mike Kirsten's uh, you know, portfolio on, with Congress because these things will be intersecting the NDA and other legislation. Um, but our allies are very interested in how do we pull this together in AUKUS. Those three countries, the UK, Australia, and US, are kind of taking a leading role on this issue. Um, and the other point that um, Andrew Hastie made, the last point here, is simply that if we could, it was a very inspirational speech. I would encourage everybody to check it out, regardless of your political view, uh, about the need to be positively uh, thinking about how do we protect our mutual security, because we do not have the luxury of just um, debating our internal politics, even though those are all important, and I'm not trivializing anything that's been said, but we, we you know, the growing international danger is also very real and we have to we have to do better. We have uh, less than a minute left and I realized I didn't ask about the inflation adjustments, something important for the US defense uh, industry and, and the Pentagon moving on that as well. Uh, Michael, uh, bring us over the finish line on that. Uh, where do we stand? Are lawmakers going to approve it and how much money is uh, required? And Dove, uh, you can have a 10 second interjection on it, but we have to keep it less than a minute, go. 
I, I don't think that, that it will be approved until there's some kind of budget deal. They have to figure out how much money uh, they're going to spend on defense, and this number would be included in that number. Uh, so if it's going to be approved, it would not be until after the election when they strike a larger budget deal to figure out the defense and non-defense numbers. And what's the size of the number we're talking about? Uh, it would probably be included in that in that sixty billion dollar increase, but I don't know right. the size of the number. Okay, uh, Dove, uh, any greater visibility into that? And do you concur with uh, Mike's uh, assessment? I certainly concur. Uh, the fact that it's within the sixty billion is already a problem because uh, it's not clear to me that uh, there's enough in there to cover all the inflation. Uh, but the real problem is. Uh, that they have to get it done before the new Congress sits down. And the reason is, if indeed the Republicans have a majority of 20 or less, you've got a whole bunch of Republicans that may be more than 20 that don't want to spend money, more money on defense. And that creates huge problems. So they've got to get it done before Christmas. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, absolute pleasure. We went a little bit longer today, uh, and I hope I, our audience uh, sticks with us for it. But thanks so very much. Have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward, uh, already looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.